welcome to episode 48 of the Camerosity Podcast, the world's one and only open source film photography podcast. My name is Mike Ekman, and we are back with another exciting episode. As we sort of, maybe, kind of, definitively stated at the end of the last episode, this one's all about Kanika. Before we get to that, though, let's do some introductions. Starting us off tonight from Gainesville, Florida, the land of missing packages, is Mr. Anthony Root. Have you ever considered shipping cameras using FedEx? I am just about to uh, make the jump. That or uh, Pony Express? DHL. Next, from Yellow Springs, Ohio, the man with 1,000 Tiffin filters is Mr. Paul Rival. Are there any local auctions coming up that you can sell some stuff at? No, there the Ohio Camera Collectors Show is this coming Friday auction. And uh, I'm going to avoid that uh, uh, if I can, which I th- I'm pretty sure I can. But I'll go to the, the uh, camera shows on Saturday in Columbus, and I'll go to that one. Well, say hi to Igor for us. Yep, he's the only reason I'm going, really. And finally, from Sydney, Australia, home of Australia's premier Aussie rules football club, the Sydney Swans. So which is better, American football, Canadian football, soccer football, or Australian football? It's For me, it's a tie between Australian rules football and what you'd call soccer. But you mentioned the Sydney Swans and Australia's favourite team. Um, that's got you into the bad books already. Sydney Swans is the most hated team as far as I'm concerned because I'm from Melbourne. So it's not it's not something I could ever support or, or could even you know fathom to stomach. All right. So as we said uh, earlier, we're going to start doing some Konica stuff. Before we get to that, though, did we have any errata from the last episode? I think we did that one pretty good. Was there something we needed to correct from last episode? There was a there. I, I think I was talking about a line of barbed wire straps that uh, was it was really I should not have gone there. That was just a little too risque for some of our listeners. I think that ended up on the editing room floor. It did. Whoa, yeah. good. Thank you for anybody who was on the live version of that show. There was a lot of crazy things that we discussed, which never made it to the recorded version. So. If in addition to helping us steer conversations isn't enough motivation to join us on future episodes, getting to hear all the ridiculous crap that we cut out uh, is is an extra incentive. But we got a couple of people in the waiting room. Let's let them in. All right. Welcome back uh, to the show, Ray Nason. How you doing, Ray? Hey, good evening. How are you? All right. Mark Faulkner, it's always good to see you. Good evening. How is everybody? And we have Brian Howard. Brian Howard, welcome back. Hey, good to see you all. We decided for the Kanika episode to take it easy on ourselves and uh, not have as many people so that we could have an easier job editing. So this is my turn uh, to do the editing. The guys and I have started rotating. So um, I want to thank you guys for not having a lot of people in the waiting room. <laughs> I don't know if that's an indication of people's interest in Kanika, but uh, that's okay with me. Before we get started, though, does anybody have any uh, any pressing agenda items to cover? Paul, you said that the OCCS auction is this weekend. Yeah, it's uh, it's Friday. The auction is Friday. You know, last year I I went and with on the behalf of uh, a well-known collector, and I wound up buying absolutely zero for him, and bought one. I paid over overpaid for one dead camera for myself. So uh, I'm not going to the auction this year. I'll, I'm going to go over to the the tra- the camera show on Saturday just to hang out with Igor for a few for an hour or so. And uh, that's about it. We talked about that in one of the previous episodes where someone had offered to send you on their behalf with a very, very large budget. And despite that, you got nothing. And then the camera you bought was a Nikon, right? The S2? Yeah, I bought a Nikon S. That, or uh, S, okay. 
that it was, I mean, it looked okay, but it didn't work. So I, I finally have it, had it uh, CLA'd. So now it's yeah. working, working very well. So it's, a, it's on my personal, sh it's got a strap on it. Let's put it that nice. way. Nice. <laughs> nice. Now, Ray, are you going to go to this one or no? Uh, I actually have a dealer event in Philadelphia. I would okay. have uh, made my way out there, but you know, time to make the donuts and do, do the uh, nine to five or do the 6 a.m. to midnight thing, shall I say? Yeah, nothing wrong with that. All right. Well, like I said, say hi to Eager for us. Hopefully it ends up being a good show. Supposedly the last, what was it? Was it the Columbus show was was fairly well attended. So maybe there's an uptick in interest. Well, there was a Chicago show last weekend. Right. And uh, have you talked to Bob? Have you talked to Bob Rodoloni about it? No, I have not. I think he did well. You know, that's uh, I heard from Igor or somebody. Maybe I saw Bob posted something, but uh, I think he, he had a good show, which was good. Well, that's good, because I know that the Chicago show has been kind of hit or miss lately, too. So maybe uh, we're finally going to start seeing some uh, good attendance and maybe some fresh faces. All right. So we're going to do Konica. It's a brand that I don't know, like, I think everybody knows Konica. But in the show announcement, there was somebody who made the comment like they have 160 cameras yet they don't have a single Konica one. And for me, it took me probably longer than any other major brand before I had my first Konica SLR, which was the, the auto reflex. Um, since then I've added the FS. I think I had picked up one of the, I think an auto reflex TC, but for some reason that was a brand that eluded me a little bit too. Um, I had been familiar with the rangefinders for quite some time, but when you start digging in to Japanese camera company history, Konica is one of the oldest. I have a review that's going to go live tomorrow for the Roku Osha Prolat. The Prolat was a folding camera. It was a copy of a German design that the Japanese had improved upon, made several changes to improve, you know, to, to make things their own. But prior to that, Konica has the distinction of making Japan's first mass-produced camera. It was called the Cherry Hand Camera, released in 1902, 1903, I believe. So in that review, it's going to go live tomorrow, so it'll be out before anybody even hears this episode. I go back into the history of Konica. They were originally called Kanishi Roku. The Pearlette's a pretty neat little camera. They produced that from about 1925 all the way to after the war. So it was a very, very long produced camera. It uses 127 roll film. So it's, you know, of a vest pocket type. They made many, many different revisions. There's ones that have meniscus lenses. There's ones that use Hexar lenses, you know, simple shutters, more complicated shutters, Basically, it probably was the camera, if I had to predict, that sort of got the Japanese people interested in Japanese cameras. It's it's actually quite interesting when I look at the Perlet too, because the, it's a vest pocket type camera, but it's the only one that I've seen that looks a little bit different in, in the mass production sense from what Kodak was producing as well. So it, it's it's quite stylish. I like the, the rounded corners on it and, and so on. Yeah, it's got a, a built-in kickstand. So like when you pull the front standard out, it's, it's a double scissors folding design. So the front kickstand sort of comes off with it. And it, they, they, they borrowed that from the Contessa Nettle Picolette. So, they, the, so okay. Konica called it the Pearlette. I know they weren't called Konica then, but Roku Osha called it the Pearlette. It was sort of a copy of the Picolette, which again is a nettle design. 
And if, if we want to get into German history, Contessa Nettle, that was August Nagel's company. So in, in an indirect way, the Pearlette was inspired off of a, a Nagel camera. So I guess you could kind of say it's like a Japanese Nagel camera. The early versions, it's it's interesting today, Anthony, you were out shooting your Cocorette, weren't you? Your Zeiss Cocorette? Correct. So the Cocorette has a distinct feature where the entire film compartment sl- slides out the side. Can you kind of explain how that how that works, Anthony? You know, first of all, it's a, it's a fairly massive camera. The the version that I have is designed for 616 film, which is like 70 millimeter wide. And it shoots 6, 6.5 by 11, I believe. It's almost it's oh. a semi panoramic. So the camera is wide. You know, it's 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 a good 10 inches wide. And the body is solid, like a like a Barnack Leica would be solid. And the bottom comes off, but unlike a Barnack where you you know, open the bottom and slide the the hiccup spool in and have the crazy carved out leader and stretch it across and put the other one in and hope that you got it seated. When you pull the bottom out, it's actually a carriage that has both spools attached to it and a uh, uh, sort of like a guided plate where the film threads through the center of it uh, and holds the film flat. And so you load it in daylight uh like almost like a cartridge or it's you know it's you can kind of think of it as like a like a modern six seven back or a Hasselblad back where you're loading it in daylight and then sliding it back up into the camera in one piece uh, right. and then it locks back tight uh so the camera itself is incredibly rigid basically one big curved piece of metal one big loop so the the picolette was the same way it where the, you pulled basically the entire film compartment out the side including the two spools and the film gate the Cocorette was the same way. And then the Prolet borrowed that. They eventually got away from that design at some point and went with uh, more of a hinged back. Like for, for people who like variants, you know, sometimes people like to pick a model that they like to collect because there's a whole bunch of different versions of it. But the, the Prolet is, is like that. Um, I've never seen any type of like attempt of like Mark one or we all know Zeiss like to give those you know, 531 over 16, you know, numbers to uniquely identify each variant, Uh, you know, Canon would give a new model number to every rangefinder for changing, you know, one tiny little thing. I'll detail this with the, with the Prolat. I mean, there's at least a dozen variations of this camera where they change things. There's a Luxus version, which is, you know, uh, an upgraded version with um, a better lens, you know, real leather, stuff like that. But the one that I have is a very late pre-war. I believe mine's from about 1940. Um, it did have some issues with bellows, with light leaks, like many of those cameras do. But um, I really wanted to shoot it. I really liked the way the camera felt. Uh, and I, I ended up just patching the bellows, like uh, lots of lots and lots of tape. You know, it doesn't look good, but I was more or less looking for you know, functionality and the images I got from it were quite good, you know? So I I think, you know, anybody listening to this, no one's going to deny that Konica cameras, you know, don't make good images, but I I think that that, that, that has been true for, um, you know, since the beginning, I'd say. So if you guys are, if anybody's interested in, like Anthony said, the Kodak Fest pocket design, but a little bit smaller, it uses the 127 film. They're very portable, very well made, very simple, you know, easy to use. Um, I, I really was a huge fan of that camera, but, uh, but yeah, Theo, it, it does have its own kind of look to it, you know, that it's just different enough. And that's, you know, Minolta did the same thing too, where they sort of copied the Plowbell Makina with the original Minolta press camera. And it's not really a copy. It's they, they were inspired by it, but, you know, changed it and made it their own. 
So I, I always kind of appreciated that. When Kanika finally decided to get into, well, I should say they, they did some of the, you know, more roll film cameras, but when they finally decided to get into 35 millimeter, they had a series of scale focus cameras uh, and then they got into the range finders. And I think that's more when most people are familiar with some of their early history because they made a ton of them. You know, the original Konica one range finder was a pretty simple camera. Mark, I think you have a Konica one, don't you? Yes, I do. Um, somewhere here on the shelf. I haven't shot with it yet, but it's oh, a camera. What I was showing here was the Kanishiroku um, Snappy. Oh, the Snappy. <clears throat> this is a inter interchangeable lens, 17.5 millimeter film. Uh, it's got full apertures. Um, I, ha I don't have any other lenses except for this 25 millimeter one that came with it. But I need to cut down some film to try to actually use this thing. So that's people call them the, the hit the hit style cameras. It uses that same kind of paperback film, right? I think so. Um, although I think when I tried to grab some other hit film I had, it didn't quite fit in okay. here. So I'll have to figure out what's going on. Okay. So I was just I was just impressed with the fact that it has you know it has you know four different shutter speeds. It's got interchangeable lenses on it, uh, and it seems to be really solid for the size. Yeah, yeah, I've seen those before. They're they're quite pricey. To see a camera that tiny with interchangeable, so what is it? Like a screw mount? Yeah, it's just a screw mount. Um, I have no idea how many millimeter the screw mount is. It's got a couple of spacers in here. I guess you have different spacers depending on what lens you're going to put in it. But then the lens is just absolutely tiny. So I mean, Mark's holding in his hand the lens, and I mean it's smaller than a gumball. So yeah, it's that's tiny. That's pretty neat. I've I've seen those online. Never one in person. The closest to that I have is the Tokotone. Uh, which does not have interchangeable lenses, but uh, yeah, Konica was was in a lot of different film types. Uh, they even made a camera that I sort of was interested in called the Konalette. They actually they made two Konalettes, but the original Konalette. One thing that's really neat about it is it uses non perforated thirty five millimeter film. So you know, picture regular thirty five millimeter film. You have the two rows of perforations, so that takes up some of the space. And you end up with an image of 24 by 36 or 18 by 24. Um, but with the with the paperback, or with I'm sorry, with the non-perforated 35 millimeter film, they shoot images 28 millimeters tall by 40 millimeters wide, which is the exact same size as Codex 828 format. But the the difference with the Konalat versus a, um, a camera that's designed for 828 film is all 828 film cameras can only shoot eight exposures. They're very very short rolls of film. Is that the Konica one, Mark? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So Mark's holding up the Konica one, which was their, I think their first attempt at a rangefinder. It's actually really well designed. If you blur your eyes enough, it, it does have a Leica-esque top plate, I guess you could say, you know, their, their wine knobs or yeah. in a similar location. It's a fixed lens though. Collapsible, right? Yeah, correct. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Those are, those are pretty well built. Just finishing up on the Kona Lat, you know, the difference is that the, the film that you could get for it could, could shoot more than eight images. So I think the Japanese were kind of experimenting with, you know, throwing a bunch of stuff at the wall to see what would thick. But, you know, imagine having a 35 millimeter camera that instead of shooting 36 millimeter wide images shot 40. It doesn't sound like a lot, but it's just enough to get you a little bit of additional surface area and get you some, um, you know, better image quality. But the the ones, the twos improved. I have a two right here. It's fairly similar. I think it's a little bit more robust. It's got a better shutter. It's got a better lens, flash synchronization. They're pretty similar though. I, I've never shot the two either. 
But I mean, gosh, it's a heavy camera. You know, it's all brass. Then they moved on to the three, which is the camera. If you've seen it, it's got a paddle that you operate with your left thumb. It's a double stroke design. And it, you advance the film that way, I, which which some people say it's faster. I, I got to be honest. I don't think it's any faster than any other method I've used, but it is certainly distinct. Um, I did a review recently of a Zenobia 35, which uses the exact same kind of left thumb paddle. If there's one thing you could say about any of these cameras is, you know, they, they produce excellent images. The, the three looks like it might've been influenced by the design of the 10 X too. That's very possible. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 they both use that same left thumb. So when I say left thumb, if you picture you're holding the camera to your eye, normally you'd use your right thumb either on the top or the bottom of in the film. But with, with the Konica threes is your left thumb with the camera to your eye it, it, there's a paddle sticking out of the side of the shutter. You just push down on it. And in, in horizontal or landscape, you know, it's fairly comfortable. But if you go in portrait, it's now at the bottom of the camera and it's really easy to kind of do some rapid sequence. But I don't know why they went with um, a double stroke on this, though. I don't think it was necessary, but uh, but they did. Anthony, have you ever had a, a three? No, I never have. It's no. a camera that's on my short list of, of cameras I'm looking for. Yeah, most of them you'll find have a Hexanon F2. Some of the later ones um, change to an F1.8 lens. My understanding is it's, it's neither is any better than the other. It's just they maybe ran out of a certain kind or something like that. But whether you get the F2 or the F1.8 version, uh, the, you're going to get great images from them for sure. And they're solid. I mean, like like Mark said, these are just well-built cameras and um, excellent chrome. I mean, just feeling it in your hand is just, this is the kind of camera where if you're new to collecting it, it sort of inspires you to want to to want to keep going. At least it did for me. Both of my Konica experiences, the cameras that I actually do enjoy using quite a bit, curiously, both go back to my time on the Classic Lenses podcast. I had recently picked up a, a, a Leotax Semi, which is a 645 folder, very compact. And Carl had just envy about my Leotax Semi and contacted a uh, a collector in South Florida that we both knew. And uh, he ended up with an absolute museum quality Pearl II. Beautiful camera. It, 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 it could exist as just like a little piece of sculpture on your desk. And he had shot one or two rolls with it, brought it by the, uh, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hand this over to, to Theo in a second, because my experience with it is actually quite limited, because Carl was bringing it to me at my cafe, I can look at him getting out of his car directly across from the front door, does not have a strap on the camera, fumbles it and drops it right uh -huh. in the middle of the street and then steps on it. Oh man. And destroys this poor camera. He, he gave it to me as like a memento. <laughs> <laughs> I've, got, I've got this rather crooked Pearl two. And they are, it's a jewel. I mean, they call them pearls. They, 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 I mean, they yeah. are a jewel like little camera, but I'm going to have to hand it over to Theo because mine is completely inoperable. Yeah. I, I've, I've had mine now for a few years and I, I wrote about it on photo thinking. And um, there's a few things to sort of really, I really love about this. One is the compactness. They are, they are beautiful little camera. I mean, they, they fit in your hand nicely they they look nice they look gorgeous the top i love the top plate on the pearl 2 uh, because it's got that focusing aid which basically has a zebra stripe uh we'll have to include some pictures in the in the show notes but it it has that zebra stripe which 
allows you to see what your uh, field of focus is going to be. It, it is just a gorgeous little thing to look at. I'm not sure it's actually that useful, but it's 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 very gorgeous to look at. Um, the other thing that's really superb about the Pearl 2, and I know they went to a Pearl 3 and, and people go after that, but it's got the the Hexa lens on it. The I'm just having a look at it here. The 75mm 4.5. This thing is sharp. This thing is unbelievably sharp. Uh, I, I was surprised out of a folder. I was getting such results. It, it's something that, yeah, if someone showed it to me, I would have thought, oh, that, that that's some other rangefinder. Yeah, a fixed lens rangefinder or something like that. But this this is a, uh, a folding camera. It's a rangefinder, and it is super, super sharp. The one thing I don't particularly enjoy about it is the wind-on at the bottom. It's got a little key uh, advance lever, which is all right until you try and put the camera somewhere. And it sits on the bottom and it literally, you can never sit this thing flat. Does it like fold out and you have to twist it to advance it? Yes, you do. Yes. So like a music box almost, like you're kind of winding it. Yeah. And it's not too bad when the fold, when the actual camera is open and you put it down that way. But as soon as you fold the the front in and you put it, it's never going to sit up straight. You have to put it on its back. Yeah. And, uh, and yeah, obviously a lot of them have, you know, damaged back. This one's absolutely perfect. They've just thought about everything in this. It's viewfinder superb. Um, it looks like it's polarized to some point as well, the, the viewfinder. So it's a really clear, uh, fantastic camera to use. So I'm sorry, Anthony, that yours is in that shape because uh, I think this is a kind of camera that you would really enjoy using. Well, Anthony loves the semi cameras. Absolutely. I, I was actually out shooting my uh, Duo 620 today. Yeah. And I just, I really enjoy the format. What do you have there, Mark? This is the Semi Pearl. This one came out in 1938, I believe, uh, and so I guess it's a, I guess it's the predecessor to the Pearl, correct? That was 1949. Yeah. 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 Any anytime you hear a Japanese company say Semi S E M I, that means it shoots six by four and a half. Kodak uh, Duo. What Anthony? Whenever you hear Duo, it's the same thing. Yeah, and it's the Apis um, shutter, and then this one has the hex um, the hex R. Uh, lens on it have you have you actually shot with that one yet not yet i made some fixes to the bellows so it's about ready to go i've had it for a while i just got around to actually cleaning it up and and testing for light leaks so hopefully shortly i will actually use it bitch to see what the results are from the earlier model but where's the shutter uh release on that one Shutter release is down here on the yeah so they, the door. They yeah yeah they obviously did that early um for people obviously listening the actual shutter release is actually on the actual door that opens up. And that's one one of the things I think is really good on this model because it, it, it actually helps you stabilize the camera very well when you're actually shooting. And that probably contributes to some of that sharpness. I know that the Pearl line extended on through the Pearl 4, yeah, which is a bit of an, a camera that we should bring up in our Unobtainium show. I know exactly one person that has one. There you go. Who is it that likes it? Cheyenne Morrison. It's a sexy camera. <laughs> but <laughs> Cheyenne, I'm so waiting to say that. <laughs> I'm not sure if he's actually ever shot it or not. You know, it's, it seems like his particular copy is always in for repair with something else that they've they've tracked down that they can't fix. But it's sexy, man. <laughs> it's so sexy. <laughs> no, he. <laughs> Cheyenne wrote a review of that on uh on James Tachio's site, Casual Photophile. And I mean he he does the camera justice. I mean, I'll admit it. 
I, you're right, Anthony. This looks unobtainium to me. I mean, it came out. It had to have been one of the very last roll film Japanese folding cameras because he says right here it came out in December of 58. So you think, you know, how like, I mean, that was the, the dawn of the SLR era, you know, was already starting. Range finders were starting to fall out of favor. And here is a top of the line, huge viewfinder, coupled range finder, automatic uh, exposure counter. I mean, like every feature you could possibly put on a folding camera they put on it so uh it's sexy i guess i'll say but um it's priced accordingly oh uh, sure you know, I've, I've tried to track prices on them and they're about double what i would want to spend on a 1950s yeah six four five folder he does have some sample images in their view so i guess he has shot it before but i've, I've heard him talk about that before. we counted the last time shine was on the show how many times he said sexy and i think it was like 20 times or something like that so uh that's sort of like his his call sign. So after that, Mike, what the, the the twos, threes, there were three A's and three M's. Yeah. So I have a three A. That was the end of it, wasn't it? The three series was the last of the rangefinders of that of that series. So the three, this the plane three has the same viewfinder as the two, which is a normal size. I mean, it's it's there's nothing wrong with it. It's a, the correct size you would expect to have a thirty five millimeter rangefinder from the mid fifties, the three, a, they took that camera and just supersized the viewfinder. Otherwise it's exactly the same. The viewfinder is, is pretty similar to the, um, the later Konica auto, like the S two, the auto S the larger viewfinder. It's, it's very bright, very easy. It's got projected frame lines. And then you had mentioned earlier that you had the final version, which was the Konica three M. And the 3M is really easy to spot because it has a folding selenium meter. So it's got a, I, I'm going to guess it's uncoupled. Do you remember if it was coupled or not? Oh, it was uncoupled. I, 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 I just, when I disappeared a second ago, that's what I was going to look at. And I, I have, I have only ever had one 3M, but I remember it. And it was, uh, it was an uncoupled meter. And the one I had the meter actually worked on. Yeah. But if you don't know what that thing is, you don't, it isn't obvious that it's a light meter yeah. because it's covered. But you have to fold it open though to even see through the viewfinder, right? Yes. Right. Um, so, do you? Yeah, you do because that's what's covered. Yes. It, yeah. When it's shut, it, it's like the Agfa Ambi Select where you have to open the door before you can yes. even see through the viewfinder. That, that camera, the M, has the meter. So, obviously, that's the most obvious change, but it, it has a second feature which I did confirm, Paul, while, while you were talking, it also shoots half frame. It can do both full frame and half frame. In order to do half frame, though, you have to put in a mask, though. So it's not something you can switch, you know, mid-roll or anything. But uh, it does have, the viewfinder does have additional frame lines for half frame. When you put in the half frame mask, I think the camera automatically detects the mask. And so instead of a, uh, it's a double stroke. Normally a single stroke advances at half frame. You take your picture and then you just advance at a single stroke again with your thumb that, so that was really Konica's first half frame camera, even though it was, it was, it was dual format, but it had the meter, very, very cool camera priced accordingly. You said you soldiers, right, Paul? Yeah. 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 So um, if you could live without the half frame capability and you don't care about the meter, but you like the larger viewfinder, the 3A is the one you want. If you're looking just 
for economics, you know, and, and don't want to pay a premium, just go with the regular three. Yeah. The viewfinder is smaller, but it's not so, it's not like, it's not like the early Kodak retina range finders where the, the viewfinder, I call it, it's like a rice, like a piece of rice. They're so tiny. It's bigger than that. So though, Mike, those were date. The dates on those were into the late fifties, 58. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then in 62, they came out with the auto re the first of the auto uh, first of the reflex cameras. Is that right? Yeah, they they came out with their first SLR in 1960. It, they called it the Konica F. Here it is. I think Ray's got one. Ray's got one right there. He's he's making me drool. So that camera they developed. They actually debuted it in '59, around the same time Nikon and Canon had released their SLRs. It was originally called the Konica Flex, and they it, last minute ended up changing it to Konica F. The, the working theory, and I, I can't confirm this, it's just a guess, but they had the Coney Flex TLRs, which they, they got into TLRs too. Konica was all over the place. I mean, to be honest with you, we really needed to have a Konica expert on here instead of me rambling because there's just so much things that they got into. They did they did TLRs. They did folding semi-cameras. Mark had the 17.5 the hit style camera with a uh, interchangeable lens mount. They had folding cameras that were just real simple. Paul, you sold me, what was it, that Konica J, which was just a really basic uh, scale focus, like yeah. plastic and metal camera. It was almost yeah. like, a, like a Kodak Pony, maybe. They made color cameras. They got into the, the fixed lens range finders. Or X. In fact, if you go back on my site, one of the earliest reviews I ever did was of a camera called the Wards AM the AM551 and that is a rebadged Konica Auto S2 and the Auto S2 was very similar to uh like the Canonet the Minolta Hymatic some of the early Yashica Lynx or Electro cameras excellent lens excellent viewfinder one thing that's really cool about the Konicas that a lot of other companies didn't do is so when you shoot a rangefinder, because the viewfinder is not the taking lens, you're not really seeing what's going to be captured on film, right? We call, we call that parallax error. So when you're shooting at infinity or greater than six to 10 feet, the, the error of what you're seeing through the viewfinder versus what the lens is going to see is infinitesimally small. It's, it's negligible. But when you get close-ups, the difference is it's like in a TLR, you know, if you take a TLR and, and focus closely, what you see through the viewfinder is not actually what's going to get you're going to record on film. And if you don't compensate for it, you're going to cut people's heads off. So for anybody who's used a fixed lens range finder, there's two basic types of viewfinders. You'll have the kind that automatically correct for parallax, like the Ashika Electro is one. Um, and, and how you know that is when you move your, your lens to close focus, the frame lines will shift down to the right a little bit. If anybody's ever actually seen that, you hold the camera up to a bright light, focus the lens between infinity and minimum focus, and you'll see your frame lines shift at an angle. A good, good hint to, to see that is when you have a camera where the frame lines don't look like they're in the center when you're focusing right. closer because it's shifted them over and it looks a bit strange because they're not in the center of the frame right. anymore. The, the range finder usually doesn't move, but the frame lines do. So at close focus, the range finder is almost kind of like in the near the corner. 
Um, yeah. There's there's many cameras that don't have that feature. If it doesn't have automatic parallax correction, you'll usually just see like hash marks that are supposed to give you a hint as to where the frame's going to be. But Konica went one step further. Not only do these fixed lens rangefinders have automatic parallax correction, they also have automatic field correction. And someone with a better understanding of optics could probably explain it better than I could. But as I understand it, as you focus something closer, the image actually gets smaller. So if you take an SLR with a through the lens viewfinder, but 50 millimeter lens, let's just say, and point it at something and focus it from minimum to maximum, you'll actually see what you what fits in on the sides change a little bit, right? Is is is, is any is any, am I making sense called, when I say that? It's called breathing. 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 Yes. So at minimum focus, you actually have your focal length actually shrinks slightly. And at infinity, it expands a little bit. Well, Konica took that into account with the frame lines on the auto series and the frame lengths actually shrink in size. So in addition to them shifting down to the bottom right hand corner, you'll actually see them getting smaller too, which ultimately does that result in better pictures? I can't say, but it's still neat. It's still kind of a, a an unexpected feature. I think a lot of people don't even realize. Anybody listening, if you have an Auto S or an Auto S2, I think maybe the S3 does it too. Point your uh, camera at a light source and keep changing the focus from infinity to minimum focus. And not only will you see those frame lines move, but they actually shrink in size. And that feature was held over on the Kony Rapid Omegas, the Kony Omega Rapids too. You'll actually see the rangefinder image shrinks in size. It gets bigger as it moves. So the the Omegas, the press cameras we've talked about before, excellent cameras. They have the, they called it the Rapid, which was like a lever that stuck out of the side. You'd grip it, pull it out and shove it back in. And that would advance the film one exposure. Ray, that camera you have there, the Konica F, borrowed yes. a feature from the Kony Omegas in which the film pressure plate, do you want to explain that, Ray? As you advance the film on the, the cocking of the shutter, the, the, the film plane itself, the pressure plate moves to have less tension up against the film gate. So it's actually a smoother advance. I'd love to show you on this camera, this one's jammed. And my Connie Mega Flexes, I used to shoot weddings with them uh, between the, the rangefinders and the twin lens. And uh, God, they were just horrible. <laughs> horrible is the best way to put it for film spacing. You know, for a six by seven getting 10 exposures, I used to get 14 all the time. <laughs> overlapping and whatnot. I mean, it's, it was a, it was a amazing. It reminded me of a Graflex, um, Graphmatic back, but on a roll of film. And we used to slam them. Oh my goodness. Rip it out, slam them back in. Uh, I can't believe any has survived today based upon how they were used in the past. So you said the TLRs do that too? The TLR had the same back. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Except wow. that it was a six by seven TLR that, you really didn't shoot verticals. You shot horizontals. By the way, the film was the film was in horizontal. To go vertical, the parallax was just just incredible. You just basically you shot a vertical in the horizontal and you cropped it later. Kind of like with a Hasselblad, like a square format. Maybe that's why they were so conscientious about rangefinder parallax correction because uh... Uh, that's very possible. I couldn't even thinking back. I couldn't even tell you how that rangefinder worked. We would just, you know, focus them, focus them, make sure you're at, at f8 or 5.6, and take the photo. We always refer to the twin lens as the funny Omega Flex. Uh, funny Omega Flex. <laughs> because they, they were really a 
mean, that, I've seen some strange medium format cameras. That one was really top of the line. Yeah, it really it was. was. Yeah. It was a very unusual camera. I had one recently with three lenses. Wow. And two finders, two separate, two different finders. Eye finder and a, the waist level finder? Yes. yes. Yeah. So does that work similar to the Mamiya TLRs where the taking lens, the viewing lens, and the shutter all come off as one piece when you swap yes. lenses? Yes. So you think the, basically the whole front of the camera. So to have three must have been a pretty good find. Yeah, it was a complete kit. There were only a couple. And it was it had been very lightly used. But oddly enough, the, the shutters were fine. Okay. They were all leaf shutters, of course, and they were uh, they weren't a problem. They were all timed pretty well. So when that camera was new, like who would have been the target customer? Who would have bought that? Wedding photographers. Wedding photographers. Yeah. Sure. Okay. Yep. Wedding slash portrait. Yep. Seniors. Uh, though there weren't at that time, senior photography wasn't as big a deal. But uh, the wedding photographers definitely. Uh, that was same people that use the Mamiya twin lenses. I mean, that's yeah. that's what they did, basically because they were quiet. And because they were leaf shutter, they could sync with, you know, flash at any speed. Well, up to one five hundredths per second. Yes. Right. So that was that was back in the day. That was your that was your top shutter speed was one five hundredths per second. Yep. I've got a question. It's not Conoco related, but it's probably more American related. What are seniors' pictures? I see that a lot. Is that when people are finishing a particular top of school? Or? Yes. It's when they're graduating from high school. And uh, it became, uh, you know, I, I don't know where the marketing on this, Ray would know probably better than, though I, I dealt with people. There there are studios that specialize in nothing but senior photography. Yep. And uh, they take them out. Uh, they'll take a senior out to, you know, uh, with changes of clothing and with ornate sets. And uh, it's it's just a big business opportunity, really. It has to have gone back to the 1930s. Did, does it go back that far? I, it, I at least I've seen my... Yeah, I've seen my mother's yearbook from her high school in Bloomington, Indiana, from like 1942 or whatever it was, and every person had a senior portrait in that. Yeah, well, school photography—that's that's one thing, but the senior photography got into a whole different thing because they were—I mean, they would—it got to be kids on motorcycles, uh, kids with their horses, you know, on the surfing. You know, they would they would do pictures of themselves in in situations of their, their particular interest. So it got to be, I mean, it was, it's, it's an act, actually a huge business. And in fact, the large studios will have what they call representatives, which uh, they'll take a, a particularly popular senior and uh, they'll be a representative for the studio to the other students to try to bring okay. the business to them. Okay. Well, thanks for that because um, outside of the U S that, that doesn't seem to be a thing because I've, I've, we don't see that at all here. The latest thing, Theo, is is we noticed this. I was with my wife doing errands on Sunday. You'll take your photograph of your child, your senior, and have a poster, like a life-size poster for your front of your door in your house. Or they'll have banners and flags downtown that are celebrating the seniors. It's remarkable at the opportunities that these studios and photographers are making right now. When I was in college, we had a, we had a, um, a class called Make a Buck. And it was literally how you can make money making photographs. And uh, just seeing what they're doing right now is just mind blowing. I mean, it's it's May and we already have families and it's a big competition around here as well because you know the peer pressure is just incredible. Well, it's interesting. That could be one form of photography where social media is actually helping it because people are, people are seeing, like you said, the peer pressure 
people are seeing all the ridiculous over the top things that people are doing on Facebook or TikTok or whatever. And, and that the people with the money say, well, I want that too. And the photographers are like, Hey, you pay me, I'll do it. <laughs> I have friends that are exclusively now senior photographers year round. Wow. That's a crazy thing. Like when I was in high school, going back 30 years ago, it was about this time of the year, you were preparing for your senior portrait. You know, it's it's, it's time for the senior portrait. And there's even trade shows that are dedicated to just senior photographers. The over the top, is that more recent then? Because I mean, I graduated high school in 96 and I remember people getting senior photos, but they were just, you put on a suit and get a nice picture. Yeah, that's those are the kidnappers. I mean, this is a whole different thing. This is almost like, this is almost, this is a progression for boudoir photography. Okay. Absolutely. I mean, it's a, it's a niche. We're talking, I have friends that have makeup artists on staff. Makeup artists for your senior portrait. The the uptake on all of this is there's too much money to be made. Us Americans, we're coming to Australia. We're taking your money when we take the pictures of your seniors. Uh, sorry for that deviation, but I just needed to know what that was all about. I'll be honest with you. I learned something new too, because like I said, I mean, I, I remember getting senior photos taken, but maybe it didn't quite hit Northwest Indiana. Brian, were you trying to say something there? Uh, no, I was just going to say I'd never heard of the senior pictures thing either, despite having been born in America, I think. <laughs> Remind us, Brian, where are you at? Where are you located? Uh, I grew up in uh, New England, but I'm in California. Uh, okay. But yeah, well, I don't know where I grew up. I don't... Brian, I I'm I'm in between Boston and Providence. And is this is this is a quintessential Mass, you know, Massachusetts... Everywhere in Rhode Island, everywhere in Massachusetts, everywhere in New Hampshire, everywhere in in Vermont, wow. even just it's it's. And then I start going towards upstate New York and uh, heading out towards Ohio. I haven't noticed it in Ohio as much on the roads I drive, but around here, it's it's like I said, we notice it this weekend on the front of someone's house. That's this just big portrait. I mean, it's awesome. I and I, I kind of felt guilty that I didn't have this opportunity for my kids. Mike, if I can get in the. Uh the TLR shaped time machine and take us to 1966. I want to talk about my other favorite Hanukkah. Yeah. Yeah. And this, this was, this was another uh, classic lenses podcast, peer pressure project. And that was that Johnny absolutely strong armed me into believing that I had to get an auto reflex. I remember this. And I got to tell you, I'm so happy he did because that is my favorite 1960s SLR. It is such a cool camera. I see there. I was talking about the auto dash reflex. Oh, oh auto, auto dash reflex. Yeah, yeah. And it was produced under a number of different names for different markets. Uh, but this camera, it's just like it's solid. It's 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 cool. Some people hate it because it has a shutter release. It's like a plunger, like you're like in an old cartoon with with Wiley e. Coyote setting off the dynamite, where he's got the plunger. And it just it just it just goes and goes and goes and goes and goes, and then it clicks. But the best thing about it is it has that switch on the top where you can switch it on the fly between half frame and full frame, which I'm sure labs loved. I have one. I couldn't find it for tonight. Mark's got his out. Theo, do you have one? So they the Japanese version was the Auto Rex. There is an unmetered version. It's called the P, which I think is what you have, Mark. Right. Correct. Mm -hmm. So if you see a P. To the right of the lens in the front, it just means it doesn't have a meter. There's Autorex, and then there was uh, Photoquell in Germany had a review 
variant of it as well too so you can find it under a couple different names but yeah i mean everything anthony said i completely agree with i love that camera it's so solid the lenses are great i i've said it multiple times in this show I don't think Kanaka ever made a camera that didn't have good lenses. You're going to get great images from them. And Anthony, you have a couple special lenses, right? For well, that I've camera? Got the, I believe the, the one is, a, is it a 5714? That's the standard. They, those are such, such nice 50s. Um, I also have the 3528 that was designed for half frame. Then I have the crazy zoom that was also designed for half frame. And I think I learned that one to you, Mike, didn't I? You did. Yeah, I was trying to lead you into that. <laughs> so they made lenses very specifically with focal lengths to be used only in half frame mode mm. to maximize, I guess, like if that's the reason the you resolution. bought the camera. That actually mounts onto that camera. So specifically, oh, for specifically for half frame. Wow. Now you can still shoot it and film. Like there's nothing preventing you from using those lenses in full frame mode, but you're going to get crazy vignetting if you do that. Have you ever tried that, Anthony? Yeah, I have. And you do. Yeah. I mean, if you like vignetting, it's great. <laughs> well, I mean, you can, you can crop it out. Yeah, you I can mean, crop that probably it out. makes sense too, because if you don't need the full frame coverage, then you can make a lens that costs far less, is way smaller and way lighter. Right. Yeah, it's a forty-seven to one hundred millimeter. It very specifically says in orange letters on the front ring, twenty-four by eighteen. You, yeah, Anthony, let me borrow it. It's in my review for the auto reflex. I, I actually really liked it. I mean. It's so bizarre, though, because at least for me, shooting half frame, you get conditioned for these tiny Olympus pen, the Fujika drive, the, you know, the Agat 18. Most half frame cameras are so tiny. But yet here is this full bodied, heavy is solid brass with a big zoom lens, full full size SLR, but it's still shooting half frame. And you got to zoom, you know, you could, you could zoom in if you don't have the zoom, it's just such a cool experience. And, you know, the images it makes are, are really good. Uh, but I, I think shooting the Konica auto reflex and half frame is less about the images and, and a lot more about that experience. And like you said, Anthony, that you can switch mid roll, right? Aren't, don't they give you instructions oh, you can, you, on the you case? Can, yeah. You, you can alternate back and forth between the two. Yeah. And what's happened to me is I've been out shooting like i remember i took it one time to the florida state fair and i was shooting you know nighttime vision three color film and i realized i didn't have another role and i'm about to run out of film oh wait i can switch to half frame mode and get an entirely second roll of film out of the roll of film that i had yeah so what would happen back then if you sent a roll in to a photo finisher would they just not cut your film then and just develop it and return it as a roll and say with a big fu sticker or what would happen? Well, they would totally screw it up. I mean, yeah. because because a lot of those machines were all automated. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't like it was a mini lab. It was this yeah. was going through a continuous processor. So, I gotcha. I mean, they were just gonna <laughs> they were gonna they're gonna process they're gonna they're gonna put two images on each picture. So basically, I see. Give it a good efforts, right? Yeah. Yes. If you're really if you have incredible foresight and can do that intentionally, that's awesome. But I don't think many people can do that. What they call those diptychs and triptychs? It's really hard to remember not only which side is which, because you got to think about the direction that you advance the film and right. which one you take first, but also to remember if you're on odd or even. And it takes some practice and loading, I find, to like yeah. reliably kind of know so you don't like burn half your first one. Yeah. All right. So, Anthony, I, I love it. Does anybody else have any comments on the auto 
reflects. And we say auto dash reflex because it's the only one that Konica made that had the dash between those two words. They they had a whole line of auto reflex cameras, but for whatever reason, when they removed the half frame feature, they they got rid of the dash. I was gonna say, since we're on the topic of half frames, the uh the Konica eye is is a is a really nice uh nice half frame from the what I guess mid 60s. And it uh is one of the half frames that goes up to 400 ISO. Uh, so you can actually use, you know, more modern film on it. Which one was it, Brian? It's called, is it a, the letter I or is it EYE? Uh, it is EYE with the logo that looks ah, okay. like something else. Right, that, right. What yes. does it look like, Brian? What does that I, look I, like, Brian? You know, I think I've seen that somewhere before. It's a... <laughs> And my unfortunately named cameras part two, I comment on how uh, the logo looks very, uh, uh, it just looks like what? boobs. I'll just say it looks like boobs. <laughs> yeah, they, they learned their lesson. And so on the I2, they, uh, they got rid of it and uh, just went for a very plain or yeah. uh, fun. I discovered that in addition to them looking like boobs, um, they also kind of looks like CYC which in, yes. in Polish is slang for, for boobs also. Oh. And uh, when you do an English to Polish translator and type in that word, it I won't say it, but it looks like another word for the same thing. So uh, well, it's, it's funny you mentioned that. I actually got this one. I believe it was listed as CYC. CYC, uh, yeah. One of, I forget which one or one or the other, but it, it took some, some time. So uh, I, I can't believe that was. It's like the Polaroid swinger. They couldn't have not known that that had what they were doing. I, I just feel like somebody swindled <laughs> some. Yeah. Coming back to the camera, one thing that, that mystifies me is why in the world the hand strap is on the left-hand side, which makes it very awkward. You can't wear it if you're holding the camera in your right hand. That's true, yeah. Usually you you're going to want to... camera in your left yeah. hand and fire the shutter or focus it or do anything with it. So they only have the lug on that side? There's only a lug on that side. It's it's absolutely smooth on the opposite side. There's no wow. provision for one. You know, I, I, I'm not a kind of person who carries a camera without a strap. So, you know, it's kind of clunky to have one stuck on the bottom of this thing. It, uh, it's the one feature that ruins an otherwise almost perfect uh, half frame camera. That's a good follow up to last week's strap episode or two weeks ago strap episode. So, Mike, the uh, the subsequent auto reflexes, you know, once they start throwing T's and, and numbers after them. Uh, you know, I don't really have that much experience with those cameras. It seems like they're a little bit lighter weight than the original auto dash reflex. Uh, they seem like perfectly serviceable cameras. Yeah, the T stands for TTL, so through the lens. The the auto dash reflex, the metered ones, the cell is on the body. So if you if you hold up an auto reflex, there's a little dial, and the the CDS cell is is external to the body. But uh, with the auto reflex T. They switched to through the lens metering. The cameras got a little bit simpler. They got rid of that half frame mode. I've handled a couple of the T's. They had a T, a T2, a T3. There's a, a, a one, I think, from the very early 80s called the TC, I think, which used a lot of plastic. And I'll be honest, here's where kind of like my experience with Konica sort of disappears because I, I didn't really have much of a chance. I had an FS1 once. It didn't work. It was just completely corroded. Paul, you've commented that those things just were junk back yeah, then well, too. The, what happened was the T's were the T's were shutter priority. And the T3 came out in 1973. 
and that was their their last of the heavyweight bodies. But it it had all the features. I mean, it had multiple exposure, depth of field preview. There you go. Ray's got a black one, beauty, beautiful, that recovered pretty. with brown leather. Yeah. The the T three was their was their last of the heavyweight cameras. After that, they went to space age material. The T four was horrible. Yep. T four and the T C horrible. T four T C. And and they 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 did also the same thing Minolta did. They went to some sort of a a funky vinyl covering on them that yeah. was it was a fake leather that shrunk. So when it shrunk, the the seams yeah Theo's holding one up there, and it just looked nasty after a very short period of time. But the good news is you can recover them and they look fine. But the T three was was really an excellent camera. Uh, you rarely see one that doesn't work. Uh, they were a uh, uh, flash sync at 125th of a second. I believe wasn't. Tell me, tell me if I'm wrong there, Mark. You've got yours in your hand. Is it sync? Is it 125? Uh, yes, 125th. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a metal shutter, and being aperture or shutter priority, you know, the lenses were a little bit problematic at that time because Vivitar was was selling the T4 lenses and the T. I'm sorry, yeah, T4 lenses. And they did not work well with uh, the Konica bodies because they didn't have the ability to put the lens on an A mode. So when Canon had the same situation, they came out with the TX mount. And the TX mount would, would service the, uh, the Konicas and the Canon cameras in the, in the shutter priority modes. Well, and if I could backtrack just a tiny bit back to that Konica F, it also has a vertically traveling metal blade shutter. A yes. lot of information online suggests that it's an early copal square but my understanding is that it is not it is truly a conica design shutter yeah you could raise holding it up it only has two blades whereas the copal square should have four but uh it does hit one two hundred one i'm sorry it does hit one two thousandth of a second it had a very high flash sync speed it beat i think it was the nicorex was the one of the first cameras to have the copal square so that was kind of a big deal in the early 60s to start that switch to the vertically traveling. If you're having a hard time understanding why that's significant, if you picture a film gate of a 35 millimeter camera, full frame, the width is 36 millimeters, the height is 24 millimeters. So if the shutter has to travel horizontally, it has to physically move the whole length of 36 millimeters. But when a shutter moves vertically, it only has to move 24 millimeters. And that's one of the reasons, if you go back to the 30s, when uh, Zeiss was creating the contacts rangefinders, why their sh shutters travel vertically also is a shorter distance, which should theoretically get you faster and more reliable speeds, plus a faster X uh, flash sync speed. So Konica was just pushing the limits so many times with their viewfinders. They were making cameras of every possible film format, design, 6x7 TLRs. The one misstep I think that sort of set them back with that first SLR was they designed a mount, an, a Konica F mount for that F that you have there. They also reused it on a second camera called the FS and maybe right one or two others. Yeah, he's got a black FS. I have a chrome FS. If you take that lens off, Ray, um, I have a picture of it in my review. The opening to where the lens is on the body is laughably small. 
compared to the size of the, the body. It gets it's about the size of the exact amount. And they, they, they very quickly found that the, the opening was too small. It didn't support open aperture metering. So Konica pulled a mulligan. Within six years of releasing that mount, they switched to the AR mount. So you'll hear the term Konica AR mount. The AR stands for auto reflex. The auto dash reflex was the first camera to have it. They continued that mount all the way through the early 80s when they eventually got out of the SLR game. They they continued to push the technology because weren't they the first maker to have an integrated motor drive with that one turkey of a camera? Well, actually, I guess it might not have been a turkey when it was new, but now none of them work. No, the FT the FT1, FT1. FS1 was the first with the uh, with the built-in motor, but I think Nikon had the N2000 out before the before the Konica. But the T4 was the first one that had a, an outboard winder that actually worked. I mean, it would shoot two frames a second. But the the when they came out with the FT1, the FS1, and then later the FC1, they just weren't very good cameras. They they were built cheap, and uh, uh, for some reason the batteries corroded in them, and it just wasn't a wasn't a good system. The Konica C35 AF was the first point and shoot with autofocus. They used Honeywell system. So, you know, they were innovating through the early eighties. I don't know why they disappeared though. I mean, I don't know if it was just too hard to compete with, with Nikon and Canon, maybe Konica just was trying too many things. Who knows? Well, they were, they were, that wasn't their, their big business was copy machines. Yeah. Business supply, business equipment. And the the distributor in the U.S. was uh, Berkey Marketing, who was a just a fantastic wholesaler, or I shouldn't say wholesaler distributor. I mean, they were Ray and I've talked about this. They they were just a. I mean, they they had all kinds of cool stuff. I mean, yeah. they had they had uh, Sunpack flashes, Sigma lenses. They had, uh, gosh, I can't remember everything they did have. They were Omega enlargers, Konica cameras. But Konica, Konica was huge in the office supply business and also right. film. I mean, they were making film. True. Uh, yeah. Very beginning. Chemistry, paper. Yeah. Many yeah. lab supplies in the in the uh, in the eighties, in the late eighties. They were they were massive in uh, in in many lab processors and film and and paper for the for the processors. Well, and it's interesting too because it, it's. Perhaps their early corporate history imprinted the rest of the company's existence in that they didn't start out as a, a photography company. You know, they got into it by selling chemicals and accessories and stuff. And it, it, it seems it's almost like Fuji, where Fuji never was truly a camera company. They, they made film. They were a film first, but Fuji was in so many other industries. That's the problem we have with Fuji today is... They can't make film because they're so focused on everything else that they do too. Now, I don't think Hanukkah was ever as big as Fuji is, but they're similar in the sense that us as camera nerds and collectors, you know, we we only think of Konica as the camera company. But like you said, Paul, they were much bigger in other industries and they had their hands in a ton of things. Well, they they also came out in '82. They came out with the uh, the Hexar AF. Mm-hmm. Uh, which was a competitor to the contacts uh, G1 or T1, whatever it was at the time. Uh, and I think I mentioned this to the guys. That I I had one of those that Konica actually gave my my boss at that time, one, the, one of the first kits that ever came into the U.S. And for some reason, he either won it or they gave it to him. Well, he gave it to me. And I carried that camera with me for 
God, 15 years and shot with it extensively. It was a great little camera. Uh, autofocus, 35 millimeter F2 fixed lens. Uh, it wasn't small, but it was it was just an excellent camera. And, and then later they came out with the Hexar RF, which was the Leica M-mount camera uh, with several lenses. And the, that proved to be a very good, very popular camera. I mean, it didn't sell in huge numbers because of the price and, and all that, but the people that owned them really liked them. I just sold my uh, Hexar AF this past weekend at the Boston show. I, I took a used one in uh, about a month ago, and I was just was going crazy trying to decide whether I should keep it. And uh, somebody somebody bought it. <laughs> the high-end shutter speed was only one two fifty at the second, though, wasn't it? It was something yep. stupid like that. Yep. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it had it had some limitations, and the also the the cool thing was that the first versions of them had what was called a silent mode. Silent, it, yeah. It was a hidden feature. And uh, if you Googled it, you could figure out how to move it into the silent mode. And it made it the quietest motor-driven camera you've never heard. I mean, it just, it was just absolutely silent. So how did it do that? Did it just go really slow? Well, no, it still would shoot. I mean, it was about one frame a second. But for some reason, it, the, the start and stop on it was, it was baffled. It, you just didn't hear it. You could feel it if you were holding it, but you couldn't hear it. Huh. Hey, Ray, my, my 1930 Zeiss Cookerette has a top speed of 250. I thought that was rather deluxe. <laughs> <laughs> Think about the film ISO back then, though. So did did Konica ever make an interchangeable lens autofocus camera or no? I don't they believe so. No. They did, not they not until they got to Minolta. <laughs> yeah, well, they they bought true. Minolta out at the end, so. Yeah. So they were large large enough to acquire Minolta, which was, you know, and they did that for the business application, not for the photo interest. Yes. The photo interest went to Sony. So you said something that I've always been curious about. Konica acquired Minolta, or did they just agree to merge? Or like who was no, the controlling? Konica acquired Minolta. Okay. I never knew well, that. Konica and Minolta were competitors in a lot of the in a lot of industries, not just copiers, but also in medical technology yeah. and some other things. And uh it was it was actually the best. It was the reason both companies survived because they they were they neither one of them would have been around today if they had not if they had not merged. Yeah, and they only produced cameras together for three years before selling off the SLRs to Sony. Yes, that happened from the get go. The the technology went right to Sony, and Sony's ramping up. They were understanding and realizing they had to bide their time. I gotcha. And what they really produced in the, that time frame was crap cameras. Should I say all plastic cameras? Is they were, camera. and they used the conic. They used the Minolta A mount. Yes, which was the right. other thing that uh, that that Sony got from them. Yes, was, it was the A mount, and and that that created its own <laughs> that created yeah. its own set of uh, set of problems for for people that use the cameras because then Sony switched them out to the E mount. But you had mentioned, Ray, the crap cameras. So I feel like we're at the, the part of the show where I get to, to rag on Konica a little bit because <laughs> in in eight years of reviewing cameras for my site, I can wholeheartedly pick my least favorite camera that I've ever reviewed. And if anybody's talked to me, you guys know which one it's going to be. And it's a shame, too, because it's a cool looking camera. But the Konica AI Borg, without a doubt, is the worst and, and I'll put a little asterisk there and say it's the worst serious camera, right? So like the Chinese cameras, you know, with the lead weights in the bottom or, mm -hmm. you know, the toy cameras that, that aren't meant to be 
serious photographic instruments. Yes, those aren't as good as even the AI Borg, but the AI Borg was intended to be a premium advanced prosumer. I mean, I think it's sold designed by FA Porsche. Yeah, it they they spent money on the design of it. Some people call it the Darth Vader camera because it kind of slightly resembles Darth Vader's mask. Uh, it had so much technology in it. Uh, I I believe when it was new, it had a retail price of something like five hundred and fifty bucks, which you know when adjusted for inflation is well over a thousand dollars today. So somebody at Konica really thought this thing was gonna gonna hit it off. And there's just so many things bad about it. The, the ergonomics of this camera are horrendous. If anybody has handled one before, pick it up. And I don't know. I think I have normal size hands. The shutter release requires you to contort your right index finger like inward and downward if you're holding the grip because it's got this huge grip on the side. So you got to kind of bend your finger down in the back of the camera. There's a directional pad, which, hey, that's cool, right? I mean, every camera today has a directional pad, but at 91, that wasn't as common. Problem is they put it in the absolute extreme upper right-hand corner of the back. So for you to do it while holding the camera, you're essentially uh, moving your thumb way up into the corner. It's completely horrible to hold. The viewfinder is ridiculously small. Compared even, you know, the Konica 3A from half a century earlier has a bigger viewfinder. Now I'll give them a little bit of credit. It has a zoom lens. So they attempted to make the viewfinder like zoom with the image as you're zooming the lens. So I I have to imagine that had an effect on size, but it is so small for a camera from the nineties. I can't imagine anybody holding it up to their face with how you have to contort your fingers to hold this camera would have, would have wanted to use it. It's got this huge LCD screen on the top. It's got 12 shooting modes Some of them are really gimmicky, which, you know, I I don't fault it for that. It's got a TV mode. It would set the shutter speed to match that of interlaced frames on a television. So if you wanted to, if you had a high score on a video game, you could take a picture of your TV and you wouldn't see the scan lines. So I, I don't fault it for having that. It has this bouncing ball mode where it takes like four or five sequential shots over itself to try and intentionally double expose. But the modes that you really would want to use like EV compensation or even the self timer are like buried behind modes you're never going to use. So like to even get to something, you know, like I said, it has 12 different shooting modes to get to the modes that you actually would want to use. You have to like scroll through all these other modes and they don't even tell you what the mode is. You just get this crazy icon on that LCD screen. Most of the time, you don't even know what it means. You'd like literally have to pull out the manual and like, or, or I guess after a while you would memorize them, but it, it just every way that they could have made this camera not make sense. is like what they did. The ergonomics are terrible, but you know what? Camera store people loved them. Did you? I, I pulled the they pants loved out of those cameras. That sexy lens cap, that bulbous lens cap. Sexy. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> camera store people loved them because if somebody came in and they wanted to look at a camera, you could say, Hey, look at this for five minutes. You can put it in the demo mode and yeah, have, all the, demo have mode. all the red lights flashing and, and yep. the thing will do a little dance and, you know, play some, play some pop tune. And it just does all kinds of cool stuff. Then you can sell them a Canon sure shot you know, <laughs> because they're, they're so straightforward. They're so easy. Yeah. After they've seen what the iBorg did and, and how huge it is, you pick up a camera, you really want to sell them like a Ricoh, 
you know, something, <laughs> something that's profitable. Margin, Paul. Something that you've got a shot at making six dollars on instead of losing twenty. I made twelve dollars <laughs> when I sold the nine Borg. I sold a lot <laughs> of dollars. Twelve dollars commissions. Twelve dollars spiff. Uh, the Samsung EXC one. Yeah. That's a you know that was a kissing cousin to the uh, iBorg for sure. But does it have the 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 ridiculous modes too, or does it have it, all the? It has a fair amount of ridiculous modes. It's a little bit easier with shutter speed because yeah. of the wing design that the camera comes up like a wing. Yeah, Mike. After we after we sign off, you'll have to tell us what you really think about the the, the board. No, I hate it. <laughs> and that's why I give it the why I say it's my least favorite camera because, like I said, it's a serious camera. I mean they. They sold it for a serious price. I am sure that if if you just forgive all of the shortcomings of the ergonomics, the viewfinder, get it in a mode you like, I'm sure it takes fi fine pictures. But I remember when I was working on the review, and mind you, I reviewed this camera like seven years ago. I assumed that over time I would find one that I hated more, and I have not. <laughs> I don't get angry when I pick up a toy camera and it feels like a toy because it's not pretending to be something else. But the iBorg was supposed to be a really good camera. And, and it's just like, wow, they did not pay attention to their focus groups at all. You know, Mike, did you ever review, Ray, which one was it? The Rolly QZ35? Yes. Yeah, it was two different versions of that. Yeah, that was a Porsche design also. It was, yep. Do you remember that, Mike? Have you? Did you ever get into no. one of those? Oh, the the handle, the, the the potato masher flash on the side, um, screwed into the camera. A removable lens cap. I mean, it, it just the lens cap. I think might have been a self timer. Yeah, it was. It was a uh, infrared remote. Yes. Yes. Yeah, infrared remote. As a matter of fact, they need two versions: one with a wide angle lens, one with a telephoto lens. That's right. You had a short wide zoom, or you had a like a moderate short telephoto zoom. And, and it even said Porsche, F.A. Porsche design yeah. was actually on the camera itself. What was the name of it again? Uh, a Rolly QZ35. But it was a huge camera. I mean, think it, about the original Olympus O product camera. Yeah, I had both of those. I, well, of, of the uh, of the Relies. They actually the, the, worked very well. The Minolta, uh, the Olympus O product and the Minolta product 20. Yes, the Pro, the product 20 is just the Freedom 101 rebadged. Oh, that's that one that it looks like it's an old school camera, but it's just a cheap point and shoot. That's the that's the Minolta one, yes. The prod yeah. prods. Okay. And then Olympus had the Acru also. Yes. Also. The Acru was the sort of yeah. uh, square. And that was based upon the stylus at the time, the stylus body inside. We we had a deal that when I was a when I was working with a dealer, we had refurbs that weren't refurbs, and I was able to buy them for sixty five dollars a piece. They were basically closing wow. them out. Sixty five I bought ten of them. It was awesome. It was an awesome camera. Uh, my, my wife had them. My mother-in-law had them. It, it was it was less money than buying a stylus, and it was this, <laughs> you know, bigger kind of block white camera, metal lens cap. Uh, it had a buckskin leather camera strap on it. Really a great camera. Really fantastic camera. But you know, to me, the most expensive bad camera <laughs> from that era was the Nikon 35 Ti. Yeah, with the an the analog needles on top, which you know nowadays they're they're, they're big yeah. bucks. Yeah, they they have the analog needles. They had the most diabolical flash system ever. I mean, it, you it was impossible to use it with flash. I mean, it was it would it, you you never knew what shutter speed you were going to get. But that dial is sexy. 
I got a. Oh, it was. Oh, it's sexy, baby. Ti and a twenty-eight Ti. They were sexy. I mean, they were unbelievably beautiful cameras. And they still demand a big price today. I yeah, like they that. Do. Yep. Mm -hmm. I remember seeing one of those very early on in collecting, and and I remember the price being on Obtainium, and I I don't think I've ever seen anything to even suggest. And from what you're saying, they're not even that great to use. So. You're going to pay a premium and then hate it. Well, and not only that, the same problem that the, some of the Yashikas and Contexts are having, there are some electrical issues. Uh, there are no yeah. parts for them. So now they're beginning to fail and uh, they just, uh, they brick. Every person I know who's paid out, you know, splashed out the money for those that I know of, hates them, has had issues yeah. with them, regrets buying them. They're pricey and they're just not reliable. Yeah, I bought one when I first came out, and I I, I didn't have it. Uh, I probably didn't keep it six months before I traded it back in. I'll have to ask Bob if he knows. Like, was there a reason that they decided to make that? Was were they trying to enter a market or something? I mean, there had to have been a reason because nothing else looks like those things. No, and I mean, it was a metal camera. It was. I mean, it wasn't lightweight like a stylus or you know any of the Canons. It was really pretty unique camera. For the time well at the time it was going up against a contacts t2 yes okay yes. that would be the that'd be the direct competitor for sure which is still a smaller camera and a better camera bringing it back to konica for a, for a few minutes we've talked about a few different cameras and so on but one thing we haven't really sort of mentioned is the hexanon lenses have an absolutely fantastic reputation they are super sharp I'm, i've got an auto reflex tc here with the the pancake 40 millimeter on there awesome. It is an awesome yeah, lens. I love that lens. And I think we mentioned it in the previous uh, show. I think, Mike, you mentioned that if you ever want one of those really nice hexanon lenses, uh, the best way to do it is to find someone selling one with a body because generally people are selling yeah. selling the cameras for peanuts. But if you're trying to buy the lens by itself, it, it can be big bucks. They were one of the kit lenses for the Konica FS1, which is one of the worst SLRs they made but they included that lens on it. So yeah, that's a great tip. Search for the camera, not the lens, and you'll pay much less. But um, to Ray's point, they are absolutely awesome lenses. I, I don't think I've heard of anybody complain about the quality of, of that glass. Well, Konica also was very big in um, building lenses for the military, for gun sites and bomb sites. And uh, I have, oh. I've had a lot of early aerial um, cameras that had hexagon lenses. I don't long. I don't. I don't have them any longer because, um, you know, who collects aerial cameras? So would mm. that have been comparable to that, like the Aero Ektar or yes, along yes. those lines? Okay. Yeah. yeah I mean, they made uh, they made like a thread mount lenses. They, you know, for um, Leotax sometimes came with them. Not Leotax. Um, Honor. Honor. It, yeah. It, yeah. I'm Honor. Say, I'm, in, I'm in the market for a, a Konica 53.5 for my Honor. I bought in Boston a couple weeks ago. Yeah, the Honors came with them. The Chiotax. And yep. the Chayokas um, sometimes came with Konishiroku lenses. And I mean, obviously they'd fit on a Leica, you know, they're the same. Yeah, they 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 were pretty. Didn't they also produce some lenses for just some other companies too? Couldn't you get, um? we had the Mamiya episode. I, I, I want to say some of the Mamiya 6s actually could have had a Konishiroku lens possibly. Earlier ones, yes. Yep. So they were around. They, they just, they had their hands in so many different things. Theo, the lenses are great. It does not matter what you mount them to. I like the the AR lenses that 41.8. I have a, a Nikkor 40 F2 for my Z. Yep. And uh this is it's it's a plastic mount lens, 
it's very lightweight, but it's optically amazing. I love that lens. Honest to God, I I think 40 millimeter is my sweet spot. I think 50 is just a little bit too long for me. I find that how I see things when I look through a 50 millimeter lens, I just feel like I'm constantly wanting to take a step or two back. Whereas when I shoot with a 40 millimeter lens camera, you know, 38, 42, I feel like I'm already where I want to be. And it just, that, that's kind of how I see the world. I think I'm looking at wider lenses. I'm looking more at 28. Yeah. And it was always a 35 person. Coming yeah. back to the end of Konica, I know that towards the end, they released a, you know, you're talking about toy cameras earlier. I know they released a series of very brightly colored cameras that seem to be directed towards the youth market, like the tomato and the Konica <laughs> pop. Are those, I mean, Theo, what are those like to shoot? I mean, are they fun cameras? Are they serviceable? I mean, they're, 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 they're certainly fun to look at. They are. Look, they're fun. I've, I've run a roll through this. I've got the tomato auto date here and they are extremely fun to use actually, because you don't think about it. You just have fun and, and you tend to actually try and use them in fun situations uh, because yeah, they're brightly colored. You just put a little strap on them and, and off you go. Um, the quality is, is about what you'd expect from a camera like this, uh, but it's reasonable. It actually, uh, I mean, I noticed that when I look at it here now, uh, Konica didn't put the Hexanon label on it. It's It just says Konica lens. It's, yeah, it's reasonable for your snapshots. I mean, you're not going to do works of art with it or anything like that. And they work. They're such simple cameras. They just work. They're all plastic. And What's the focal length? 38? Uh, 35. 35 something point four. there's a scratch on the, on the labeling here i can't make out what it is but um it's it's a point four or something something plus point four. but it is um uh they go up to 400 iso uh in fact you've only got three choices you've got 100 200 and 400 so they've, they've really simplified this uh there's a little flash that you can just turn on and off uh and uh they are a manual rewind uh, and forward wind sorry they're not automatically winding or anything like that so it's just a little little click and wind on click wind on i did a quick google search it says the Konica tomato is a rebranded pop 10 so if you don't want the red you, you can get the exact same camera as the pop 10 but why would you you want the red right <laughs> yeah <laughs> get the red you know i'm looking at i'm looking at a picture one they're they're sexy. <laughs> no, they, they are good looking cameras. I mean, they, I don't know why they chose tomato and not like cherry. Do they have a lettuce? <laughs> <Lemon>. <laughs> um, but what's interesting with this one is this is the, the date. This is the auto date. So you've got this really simple, effectively toy-like camera where everything's absolutely manual. And then you've got this LCD screen on the back where you can actually print dates. <laughs> It's it's really bizarre. Interesting. Yeah. So once again, another market that Kanaka went into, they had a camera called the recorder, which was a half frame, half frame. really strange. It was like very flat, like a square camera. I have, it don't work. Don't you have to like spread it apart kind of? Yes. Open it up. Yeah. Another weird one. I've never seen it in working condition. No. Ever. Nope. Fuji had a similar camera called the TW3, which I have, and they had a, a soldered in battery. That yep. was not it was not meant to be replaceable, but it's really easy to open up the camera and just desolder it and put a new one in. So I was able to use that. I didn't really care for it though. So I can't imagine the recorder is any better. 
Well, the recorder was a half frame, and I thought that the TW was 35 millimeter. No, it's half frame also. Is it, is it half frame? Okay. Yeah. It has twin lenses. It's it's a tele and wide. Okay. They they even got into APS. I've got a little Revio Z3 here, and it is actually quite a sexy camera, funny enough. It's all metallic and and so on. Yeah, obviously, you know, with like the tomato, they were going for for some sort of market because it even has a little inbuilt mirror for selfies, which uh, which I thought was quite quite neat. It's actually quite a nice camera to use. This one suffers from a fault which seems quite common on them is that the the actual film release seems to break, and so you can shoot your whole roll and um, you can't actually open it to get your film out or put a new one in. So it's, it's um, which you know, is not great. I actually had to pull this apart to get the film out. And if I want to ever use it again, I have to actually pull the whole camera apart again, stick the oh, film geez. in and put it back together. <laughs> so uh, it might not get much use again. <laughs> can you still buy APS film? No. No. Nobody can't. makes it. It's only for nostalgia reasons. Nobody made a true black and white emulsion. It was all C41. Even the mm. even the black and white APS was still just like a C41 emulsion. Yep. Robert Shanebrook spoke very briefly about it in one of the episodes he was on. How they were able to fit so much film in a tiny cassette. It has a very, very thin base. Yep. You know, the thinner the base or something, the less likely it is to, to last beyond its expiration date or something along those lines. I'm butchering the explanation, but the, the gist of it is, is even if you find unused APS film today, the odds of it being viable are, are very low. It just, it does not age well at all. You know, yesterday I found something that I'd never seen. APS slide film. Yeah, I think Konica made wow. it. Kodak never did, but I think nope. Fuji did and Fuji, Konica did. What I saw was Fuji um, ASA 100. Yeah. And, you know, I'd never seen that. I had no idea they made such a... That was part of the plan was to do slide. They, they originally had planned more film speeds. They had planned a true black and white emulsion. It just, it never caught on. You know, digital cameras just came came too quick, too fast, you know, and it, the, the door, the writing was on the wall far too quickly on that. And they just, they didn't continue to innovate, which is a shame because honestly, some of those cameras were pretty cool. I really like the Minolta Vectus. Vectus S1. Yeah. Yeah. This S1 is a really nice camera. Even the Pronia Nikon's camera were nice. The, the Canon, the Elf. The IX Lite. IX. IX Lite, the Elf, mm -hmm. the uh, Ixus, you know, they, they made so many of those. Yeah. That that shape, but the, the little elf, the original little APS, elf. it was tiny. I mean, it was not much bigger really than, than a Minox. Nice little camera. Cause I mean, here is a, uh, Ansco memo yep. and the, the elf, they're almost the same height, but the elf is slightly narrower. Okay. So the, the original elf is even smaller than this. Theo's got it. Oh, he's got it. Okay. It's, it's metal. It's yeah. It's the, I've got the, the elf too. And it, it's a great camera. I've got a review. I'm yeah. kind of thinking about it. And in fact, the, the APS film actually worked perfectly on it. I got great results out of it. Okay. Uh, but it, it it is so small. I mean, you can see it in my hand, and I haven't got yeah. big hands. It, it's tiny. Actually, that's right. The L2, the Elf 1, the flash would elevate as you turn the camera on. The Elf 2, that's it cool. was built in. Uh, it was horrible because they they didn't last for very long. They were very fragile. No. And Nikon had the Nuvus, which yep, was Nuvus. A little bit bigger, but uh, also a metal construction on the first Nuvus. That was a camera they released at PMA that they didn't want to announce. You had to order it. They allowed you to order it with your name engraved, but you didn't know what you're getting. You didn't know which one? 
you didn't you, you didn't understand what the camera was. They wanted to have you order the camera. I as see, a, I see. With your name engraved, and it was a big surprise. What is that, Theo? That's a 160 Nuvis by the looks of it. Nuvis, okay. We need to save all of this for the dead format show. I have it in the basement. I've got a brand new Nuvis, brand new in the box. Never had a film in it. So the other thing about Konica, what about at, before they went out, they made the Leica M lenses um, that had nothing to do with their their uh, Hexar rangefinder camera. They made the 60th anniversary 60 millimeter f1.2. While sure they had a camera at that time frame, it was really aimed at the Leica Leica shooter. Remember those, Paul? Oh yeah, and those are unobtainium too. Sure. I mean, those are just an awful lot of money. And that they had the uh, the Hexar. RF, the rangefinder camera, was basically a compact M7. Yeah. Um, because it was aperture pri- uh, shutter, it was aperture priority. It was also it was also an auto film advance. It wasn't mechanical yes. film advance. Yes, yes. And they were extremely reliable. I mean, they, they just never. I mean, if you see one today, it's probably still working just like it should. Wow. But they made a couple of special editions on those too. I think one with a rhodium body. Yep. Um, just like the Hexar AF, they made it in rhodium. I had one. The last one I saw was in silver, and it said Hexar silver. Yes, that's right. And then they had a 28, a 50, and a 90 millimeter lens. Yep. And then in addition, the the, the fast lens, the, the 1.2. Would they sell the lenses separately or only with the bodies? Uh, you could buy them a la carte. No, yep. you, okay. you, could, you could buy them any way you wanted. You could buy the body package with a 50 F2, but you didn't have to. Interesting. I did not know that. And then they made the weird camera for the Japanese market, the Gin, Gintobu, the construction camera. Yes. The Gin, Gintobuku, something like that. That was a job site camera. It was a job site camera. Job site yeah. camera. That was an industry Fuji went all in on too. You, there was a lot of those high, big rubberized body. HD series. Yeah. I had a Fuji one that was a manual focus, but the focus knob was on top of the camera. So it was like a point and shoot. But you could focus the lens by rotating a dial on the top of the camera. It was real bizarre. And they made them interesting. I mean, they were interesting looking cameras. They were yeah. pretty, and they were industrial as can be. Yeah. Yeah. I've got the Fuji one here. So yeah, it's very That's similar. That's the HD. Yeah. It's yeah. the HDM or is it HD3? HDR. So we've covered Konica quite a bit. I know there's stuff we missed. I don't think between, <laughs> we're down to just us four plus Ray. Brian and Mark both had to drop off. So we're the we're the five horsemen here. Since we have Ray though, before we go, I wanted to ask, you participated in the fourth Ohio auction, right? The Yarovsky. We talked about this on a previous episode without getting into too much gruesome details was anything improved on the fourth from the third uh, are there any comments that you want to share so i i made sure i was in the area to do the preview obviously traveling for the work i do i was able to have the luxury of doing that and i'm glad i did because i found in a couple of lots i found a set of eyes for a leica simicron dr lens that i needed and I found a rapid advance for a screw mount that wasn't listed anywhere. And I made my notes in a notepad and did my diligence. When I went to pick up the gear, they, uh, the, the schnoo was there and it wasn't published at all, but in, in the auction, it wasn't shown in the pictures, but it was there, but the eyes were missing. And this was a, a, a chest of parts, if you would that I uh, I put a lot of money down. I put a very high bid in to win this. 
and it wasn't there. So I called the person who was responsible, who had a great conversation when I was there. He he was aware of the issues of the last auction where things were missing and the, the multiplier and the and the bids were, were obviously not as bad as the last time. But I basically, he was going to let me walk away and say, if you don't want the lot because an item's missing, you don't have to have it. And it was plenty of things in there that was worth the value of the lot. So lo and behold, I just said, fine, I've got a 12 hour drive back to my, my house. I need to leave now. I let, I was so disappointed that I was missing that set of, uh, of eyes in that box or that in that chest of parts that I set the gear and I left the gear in my car for like three days. I was home. I just got back from a 12 day road trip. I really didn't need to be anywhere. So I pulled the gear out and in my, uh, my diligence is I'll pull gear into my garage. I'll clean it before it comes to my house. And this was like Paul made a mention on how horrible the last auction that he participated in. This was the worst of the worst. This was talk about having to knock the rust off and the dust and the mold. And it was just horrible. I threw away half of what I purchased and I purchased pretty heavily at the, at the event itself. But a few days after I got home, I'm going through the cases. I'm going through the, the, the chest of draws. And not only is the eyes there, but a second setter there. So because I didn't freak out, because I didn't cause a scene, I mean, I made it I made it known that the MO of the auctions were pretty bad. And the representation of what happened with items being missing uh, was repeating itself. But, you know, I, I, I worked in a professional manner and uh, I guess my karma rewarded me when I got back home. So I'm uh, I'm very pleased. I, I wish that the descriptions were better because most of those cameras were broken parts cameras. They were jammed and didn't work. Yeah. And they went for a lot of money. There's a lot of things that went for a lot of money. And there's a lot of things yeah. that went very little money. Well, that was the experience I had with the third one. It's because I had bid on a bunch of stuff. You know, Paul, um, you know, we talked about this before, but they never said it was operational. So, I mean, I guess there's that. But the way it was presented is this was from a major collector. Right. And, you know, when I hear collector, I think of the people I know, you guys, Van, Von Cabbage, uh, Paul, you know, any of us. And I have broken cameras here, too, but most everything is in great shape. And if it isn't working, it can be fixed. Right. But what they were selling, one of the auctions Paul picked up from me I had an SR2 in it. And that was Minolta's very first SLR and I really wanted one. I didn't care if it wasn't in the best shape. Well, it came with a couple other cameras. And I remember telling Paul, it's like, you can throw those away. And Paul's like, I'll just send them to you. And <laughs> one of them, I swear to God, it was covered in poop. It wasn't poop, but it sure looked like it. It, it was poop. <laughs> I had a conversation with the auction, the auction director. Yeah. He said he got a tetanus shot after, after moving these boxes. But I, I don't, I, I guess shouldn't surprise me, but it does. They, that wasn't a collector. It was a hoarder. It was a camera it, hoarder. It was a hoarder. It, it's kind of funny. I have a dealer I mentioned. He goes, what, what are you doing out here only from Boston, you know, visiting me? I'm like, well, I have an errand to run. I'm picking up some uh, auction items. He goes, oh, yeah. What would you pick up? What would you buying? And I told him, and he goes, his eyes lit up. This guy used to be in his shop, and he says, uh, you know, four or five times a week. He was a teenager. So this guy was really new optics. He used to do a lot of repair work. You know, he's, he was a he was not a professional repair shop, but he was a repairman. He specialized in like a screw mount. He had an antique shop. The amount of gear, the, the the pure amount of gear that he had 
I guess the first auction, there was some pretty good items that were sold and they went for a very reasonable price. And then things just escalated and, you know, the hype came on and yeah, I was there. There was still, Paul, you remember that big, it was like a 16 by 20 or 11 by 14 camera. It's a really yeah. big, big camera. Well, that is a gentleman in Texas who bought that. It was still sitting there, but he bought even more lots. And I was talking to, again, the auctioneer about the cost of, so the studio camera must have weighed 400 pounds, big wooden monster of a rolling uh, tripod. It's, uh, you know, like a camera stand. And I said, that's got to cost you, you know, a couple thousand bucks to pallet it and put it on a truck to drive it to Texas. He was showing up to pick up his auctions, all four auctions that he, uh, you know, paid for. He's making a trip up to pick up his, he had, he had a full length of the building, a table worth of stuff. Wow. Crazy. Well, hopefully he's not disappointed after driving from Texas. I can't see how anyone can't be disappointed. Yeah. Um, this last auction, like I said, it was pretty, it was pretty bad. It was, you know, not represented. The first auction, and I didn't partake in an auction. I didn't realize it was happening. Um, I actually honestly hate auctions. I'd rather buy something or not buy it. Um, you know, on your own terms, be able to handle it or whatnot. But uh, he's got tools left. So this is, they're, they're basically done, unless it's going to be a surprise on uh, maybe two more auctions worth full of Chotskis and tools. And I was looking at uh, a small automat uh, lathe, pocket lathe, and things of that nature there. So interesting. Well, thanks for sharing that with us. I was curious. I, I didn't expect there to be a significant difference, but uh, none of us even bothered to, to jump in on that one. So. Well, it was worse. How does that sound? <laughs> All right. We you were coming up on the two hour mark. We don't have a lot of people here. <laughs> you guys have anything else you wanted to talk about? Something we missed? You know, I'm not sure, Mike. We have either reached new heights or plumbed new depths of nerdiness tonight. <laughs> <laughs> I thought for sure the strap episode would either be one of two extremes, and thankfully it was the positive one. I joked that there haven't been many podcasts or any at all devoted to straps and the feedback we got is was pretty positive theo weren't some of their podcasters commenting that they enjoyed listening to they, they did actually they, they were very surprised and then but pleasantly surprised that's that's yeah. actually a very good sign i always enjoy listening to the shows it could take us a week or so to get these things out and sometimes by the time you're done you sort of forget the things you talk about so even though we're on the shows re-listening to it you know, you hear things that maybe you missed the first time. So I, I enjoy listening to it. And that was a fun episode. So we aren't trying to be the nerdiest podcast. I just think that that's just the nature of how things end up being. But uh, um, I hope people still listen. <laughs> what are we going to do next time, Mike? What's up for What's the next episode? Is it lens caps? No, no lens caps. Filters. <laughs> We're going to have a show all about filters. Polarizers, UV, oh, sky sure. filters. I've been on a half frame tear. Yeah. I spent a lot of a lot of money I shouldn't have spent in Boston on broken half frames, pen Fs, for example. There you go. Well, you better call in two weeks then. Put it on your schedule. We're gonna do half frame. Uh maybe we'll do half an episode and we'll just end it at an hour. You know, it'll be the half episode. <laughs> half, <laughs> or we'll release frame. it in two halves <laughs> or something stupid. But yeah, so uh, you know, thank you guys. Thanks, Ray, for coming. You could be like, you're like the fifth Beatle. You could be the fifth host. You're welcome back anytime. Enjoy talking to you. Thank you. Two weeks from now, Half Frame, Camerosity Podcast, Spectacular. I, I'm, I'm getting tired, guys. <laughs> <laughs> Play a night, Mikey. 
All right, good night, everybody. Good night. Good night. Good night. Bye. Bye. surprised we did not have more people here for this i know i i was shocked too i was gonna say for a title we could call it the one where nobody likes kanaka (laughs) (laughs) you know maybe future generations will look back at the history of the camerosity podcast and declare that the kanaka episode was when we jumped the shark